Welcome to The Public Morality. Each February, we celebrate Black History Month, a curious American phenomenon in that its willingness to truncate the history of African Americans into a single month in lieu of the more daunting and much more needed efforts to integrate this legacy into the American historical canon. To discuss the significance of Black History Month in the 21st century, we're joined by Professor Martha Biondi. Professor Biondi teaches African American history at Northwestern University. Professor Martha Biondi, welcome to The Public Morality. Glad to be here. Let's begin by sort of looking at sort of the, the, the overarching history of, of, of what is now African American History Month. It started by Carter G. Wilson as uh, Black History Week. Hallmark has sort of, it's a Hallmark greeting card now. So once something becomes a Hallmark greeting card, has it lost some of its meaning and value in your view? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. I think for many, it can feel like a postage stamp, right? Or a Hallmark greeting card, a symbolic recognition, but devoid of the struggles, complications, contradictions, and certainly unfinished agenda of Black liberation. Or there's a sense that, you know, we have a couple of programs or events in February, and then that wraps up everything for the year. You know, it's out of the way now, done and over. And obviously, that's very problematic. It replicates, if you will, the American society's broader desire in some ways to contain discussions of race, to contain acknowledgments of Black history. I really think we're due for a new paradigm where we're challenging ourselves, our students, and or our communities to really address diverse and or difficult histories and cultures on a more regular and ongoing basis. Well, that, that's a great segue for my next question. Take us through... And I should point out... Sure, go ahead, go ahead. And if I could just add one thing. I mean, I think it's important to recognize, too, that education, including Black History Month education, goes on in different sectors. So I know, you know, I know that it's going to bring a host of new documentaries and programs on PBS that I'm really going to enjoy. <laughs> so, you know, that's a great thing. I don't want that to end. I want it to go all year round. But also, I think one problematic sector is in public schools. Like, I think we of a nation have refused to really train public school teachers to adequately teach black history, you know, and occasionally we hear glaring stories of what that leads to. I mean, there was a story here in Chicago of an elementary school celebration of Black History Month that included an assignment for kindergartners kindergartners to draw and write about African animals. Um, or there's the story in Texas high schools that, you know, taught had textbooks that described enslaved Africans as, quote-unquote, immigrants to the United States. Um, I think this situation is such that, you know, one study I read a couple of years ago said that 8% of high school seniors, only 8% could identify slavery as a central cause of the Civil War. So there's a failure happening in high schools in teaching these subjects in a truthful and comprehensive way that I think is a real problem. And that that's you know, related to this discussion, but is its own, is its own, I think, issue that needs, needs much more attention. Well, well, to, to that extent, there are things now that we don't associate, that are not commonly associated with black history, but black history that are black history. I mean, there's a black history perspective to the Declaration of Independence. There's a black history perspective to the Constitution, and to the War of 1812. So, so this notion of black history, and part of it is a perspective, is really a larger, more expansive, ongoing conversation than currently what we're having now is what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Yes, it is. So can you sort of rephrase the question in well, that? Well, well, 
I mean, for example, if, if we were talking about the Declaration of Independence, for example, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There, there is an African-American perspective on that that's, that's part of that history. You can even expand that. There's a women's perspective on that that's part of that history. And so it, it really, a, a lot of what we say as American history um, not only does not regard African-American history, but in some regards just disregards that there's a possible alternative perspective to that history that we're talking yes. about. Yes, yes, that's exactly true. And in, in, in some ways that brings to mind, for me, one of the first sort of events in our history that captured my attention as a child and thinking about what is a black perspective on American history. I recall the nation's celebrations of the U.S. Bicentennial in 1976. And that moment gave rise, I think, to discussions in some mainstream media of how black people and the black experience fit into this story. So I think this was in many ways, it was unintentional, but this created an opening to discuss, you know, the kind of slavery and its absence or presence in the Declaration of Independence, in the Bill of Rights, in the Constitution. So that bicentennial sort of very public um, celebration of the nation's founding created this opportunity for black scholars and activists to sort of intervene in a kind of public sphere and narrate a kind of different story of the founding fathers and how that, you know, in some ways created a legacy we're still living with. Pretend for this conversation that I am a a student interested in taking your Introduction to African-American History course. I don't have access to a syllabus. Walk us through (laughs) that course. Of course I didn't have access to a syllabus. You you know I was going to tell you that, right? So (laughs) I can email you the syllabus. (laughs) (laughs) Walk us through what that course looks like. Please. Sure. My dog ate sure. the whole syllabus. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because students these days, you know, they write you months in advance. Can I please have the syllabus? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I actually teach the second half of that. You know, it's a survey class and I teach the second half, you know, from the end of the Civil War down through the, the contemporary period. Okay. So when I teach it, it covers Reconstruction, the violent overthrow of Reconstruction, sharecropping in the agrarian economy, the Great Migration, and multiple forms of Black resistance and institution building. I think I would I would emphasize to students that they're going to have, you know, many of their preconceptions perhaps challenged. Um, they're not going to hear a story of, of a regional character of white supremacy or segregation. I think the course really drills in that this is a national story. I think that this, you know, this kind of dialectic between making gains and then having pushback um, that we've seen, you know, from Obama to Trump very recently in our own time, right? I think that that's a main, students will learn that that's not a new thing. That's not just like a civil rights backlash story, but that that's, that's a theme in this whole, in this whole saga um, that they'll see play out over and over again. They're going to learn, I think, more stories of black innovation, success, and inst- institution building despite extraordinary odds more than they probably uh, would have thought they'd be expected the degree for one example of black land holding that was achieved in the South at the turn of the, at the end of the, the 19th century. And of course, then there was a horrible period of what's known as land theft or land loss and white riots that, you know, was intent upon destroying that progress. 
So I think they'll learn, for example, that the 14th Amendment, that a lot of the black struggles for freedom and justice and equality have broadened rights for all Americans, have strengthened democracy for all Americans. So just one example of that is, you know, the 14th Amendment, you know, which was a crucial part of the aftermath of the Civil War, the destruction of slavery and the, the guarantee of citizenship to black people in the United States. That kind of anchored what scholars have referred to as the rights revolution in, in American law, right? And so that that then anchored not only civil rights for black people, but defendants' rights, Latino rights, immigrant rights, disability rights, gay rights, and et cetera, and so on. So I think that they're going to see how, you know, that's also one example of this thread you've been kind of focusing on, how this, how African-American history is a critical lens onto U.S. history and really a, an integral part of U.S. history. How do we escape from the, the existing paradigm that sort of truncates the meaning of certain individuals? I mean, throughout history. For example, we freeze Martin Luther King on the steps of the March of Washington. Rosa Parks was a seamstress who wouldn't get up because she was tired and her feet hurt. She wouldn't get off the bus. And Malcolm X is this fire-breathing dragon of hate, or he's on the cusp of being a king devotee. I mean, all these are obviously oversimplifications, but how do we move away from from that type of uh, uh, reductive paradigm, if you would? Yeah, um... It's 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 extraordinary in a sense of how um, you know we have such low expectations almost of what Americans can hear. You know they need sort of simplistic generalizations uh, of history, and I think it diminishes us as a nation. Um, I mean it's very infantilizing. I think it infantilizes the national culture and it prevents us from facing truths about our past and about our present. You know you think of the founding myth from American exceptionalism to, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, as long as we're sort of wedded to these myths, that in some ways it requires that we exclude or downplay or rewrite much of the nation's history. Um, And that history includes what you were just talking about, the Black Freedom Movement. I think there's been a strong desire in the broader society to really contain its power, right? To simplify it as a simple story of a quest for integration and to really downplay it's it's the powerful analysis of American history and of American institutions that it kept pushing and pushing and pushing us all to see. Um, and that there's always uh, the standard is a refusal to see that. So in refusing to see that, we have to um, make very one-dimensional figures like Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Um, but I think that this desire to this refusal to see the past in some ways is, you know, it's constitutive of what a settler colony is, right? I think that this disavowal um, has extended to the whole early, you know, how the whole origins of American history, the United States of America, is taught in schools. I mean, it's only recently, for example, that there's been wider acknowledgement that Many of the founding fathers and first presidents were slaveholders, you know, so so we have a long way to go. Well, to, to that extent, are we, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but in, in the present form, it almost, it feels like whether it's African-American history or it's LGBT uh, Equality Month or Women's History Month, all these histories 
have been given an adjunct status in the American narrative. And I'm wondering, do we even have the maturity to integrate the, these other histories that have been marginalized in, in other ways? Do we have the, the, the maturity to, to hear them? I'm, I'm hearing you say we don't have that maturity. You know, it's a great question. It's like education is power, and, and I think we're making progress, but I think that that always, as we've seen, it, it produces conflict and it produces pushback. It always has. I think there are differing degrees of this readiness or this maturity um, uh, among different groups of Americans. I mean, I'm, on the one hand, really heartened by the activists and educators and artists all over the country who spearheaded efforts to remove monuments to the Confederacy and launch uh, conversations about how we can better honor our ancestors who gave their lives to fight for freedom. I mean, you would think for many, wouldn't it be a relief to stop celebrating histories of conquest and slavery? (laughs) You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to see, I mean, imagine a new landscape of like memorials and statuary across the nation that instead of commemorating a war, you know, a treasonous war or a war to defend slavery, instead of seeing monuments to slavery, we saw, you know, monuments that commemorated slave revolts or worker strikes or immigrant histories or social movements. You know, I think that would obviously reveal a much more complex, but still moving, still like, you know, human story. Um, I think the memorial to lynching victims in Alabama and the many new museums of civil rights and African-American history that have been, you know, slowly and gradually sprouting up across the South in particular are really helping us to forge a new path. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the younger generation really has a much different perspective on all of this, and they don't have the same sense of being afraid of confronting this history. They're much more courageous and fearless, you know, than a lot of, um, you know, so I, I, I look, I look, that gives me hope. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that you have hope. Um, I don't want to be dour about this, but but you mentioned the Civil War, which is still the, the seminal moment in American history, and, and there's not even common agreement on why that war started. I mean, I have my thoughts, but you still can't get common agreement on that. That shows to me a, a, a lack of uh, maturity and courage. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree that that's the default, and I think that's the standard position. It's It's been the standard position. I mean, you know, at the end of the Civil War, yeah, we went through this long period, you know, the scholars call the lost, you know, kind of this culture of the lost cause got enshrined in American life, you know, that framed the war as this, you know, regrettable failure that framed Reconstruction as an assault on white people's rights and dignities. You know, they framed the Ku Klux Klan as saving white women from black, you know, the deprivations of newly freed slaves. So that, you know, Birth of a Nation was filmed in Woodrow Wilson's I was I was thinking about Um, Woodrow Wilson as you you were saying that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, that's a big mountain to overcome. And I think that, and this this was a story not just produced out of the South or or in, in schools in the South. It was it was these history books were written in Harvard and Yale and Columbia, and they were that's how this story was portrayed for decades and generations. So, yeah, as I said, there's a lot of work to do. And we're, I think we're seeing the, the I think the urgency of this work in our own time. Obviously, the events of January 6th, where you had insurrectionists marching with a Confederate flag in this in this capital, you know, are heart wrenching and are horrific and. So there's not only like this educational, cultural reason to engage in truth telling, but there's, I think, vital social and political reasons 
to really fully commit to truth-telling as our national mission because, you know, now we have, now we have, I don't know how many millions of people, I mean, believing lies and conspiracy theories and, and myths and untruths. And so, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And I think just the kind of, in some ways, I think of, you know, I mean, we could talk a lot about how during the civil rights era, we made such partial and small gains. And one thing that we've, we've never done as a nation is confront the legacy of slavery. We've never had a reparations process. We've never had a, you know, like South Africa has a truth and reconciliation. There, there are many countries that have had dictatorships that have had some kind of reparation remedy in the aftermath. We've never, as a country, formally in any way faced our own history of enslavement, of native genocide. These are these are these are wounds. These are unfinished agendas. And I that, I think that there's a crucial need for that, and it needs to take place on many levels. I mean, obviously, we're a big country. We have a federal system. These can take place federally. They can take place on state and local levels. But now I'm thinking we're going to need to go through this for Trumpism. Like, we're going to need in some ways, like, some some processes of purging our, our nation of this newly flowering uh, white supremacy and Nazism and, and 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 violent, you know, extremism that we've seen, you know, that really got a lot of license and sanction in the Trump, Trump years. It's always been with us. This is a key theme in American history, but it's gotten extraordinary sanction and it's very well armed, sadly. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Northwestern African American history professor Martha Biondi. And Professor Biondi, one of the gold standards of, of, of any black, of most black history month celebrations is the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. If you would, but what's often not shared as much is the impact and the contributions of women in that movement. Could you talk about that for a moment, if you please? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. I think that um, because there's been such emphasis on, you know, whether it was Thurgood Marshall and the lawyers or Martin Luther King and the preachers, or Malcolm X and the kind of, you know, or the Black Panther Party leaders, the kind of fiery male Black nationalists, you know, there's been a lot of elision and and sort of, you know, forgetting of the primary, major, and extremely important role played by African-American women. I mean, throughout African-American history, but in what we call sort of a long civil rights movement or long Black freedom struggle, I mean, obviously, we can go back to the era of lynching with Ida B. Wells, who's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, from lived for a long time where I live in Chicago. And, you know, she was just a pioneering, way ahead of her time thinker and analyst who, who, who did just extraordinary work to expose the truth around the, the racial terror that was happening uh, in the United States. But in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, you had figures like, I mean, most famously in the South, Ella Baker, who, who championed the student movement that culminated in the creation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, after the sit-ins in, in, in 1960. She was a kind of a fierce, legendary leader in this extraordinarily, you know, violent era in Southern history in which these young people, but it was very intergenerational, and she shows that, like, really led the way in fighting for full equality, fighting for voting rights, and really facing down terror and police dogs and violence. And so Ella Baker was very inspirational. She, she had been an activist 
really her whole life, and she was also important in in the Northern Civil Rights Movement as well. Um, she helped to found a group in New York City called In Friendship um, that brought a lot of Northern support to the Montgomery bus boycott. So she was a person who kind of knit together Northern and Southern struggles. She was a, a kind of almost an elder um, in the 1960s, but somebody who recognized that youth were going to be at the forefront. So she really empowered youth and really let youth lead. But she was a trusted advisor and somebody who influenced um, generations of activists. Um, and But there, there are many, many more women like Ella Baker that, um, unfortunately, again, as the media always tends to want to look give the microphone to the male leader, um, the contributions of women like Ella Baker, like Fannie Lou Hamer, again, an extraordinary on-the-ground leader, and the kind of violent years of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, who put her life on the line, right, for the right to vote, for full freedom and dignity. These are the true heroines, if you will, of, of the grassroots struggle um, that it's so important to hold up in Black History Month, but all year round. You mentioned Ida B. Wells living in Chicago, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason she lived in Chicago is because she was run out of Memphis because of the article she was writing on lynching. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's one thing, and you know, that I think sometimes people forget as, as what made, in some ways, the struggle for, for equality or human rights in the South so difficult is that there were, no, there were no Bill of Rights for Black people under segregation and Jim Crow. So that whole regime relied upon suppressing free speech, suppressing the right to dissent, suppressing the right to speak out. So just writing newspaper, newspaper articles that told the truth, right, that exposed the complicity of people in power with these lynch mobs, that endangered her life, right? So she faced death threats, and she knew her friends had been killed. She knew to, to take that very, very seriously. So she was forced to flee the South. You know, in some ways, that story of being a, a political refugee characterized many, many African-American Southerners during the period of the Great Migration. There was a, a, a fleeing violence was was part of the impetus, or many impetus, many sort of push and pull factors, if you will, that shaped the Great Migration and this major demographic shift in American life. But fleeing political violence and coming north to sort of do that work, working in the black press, founding institutions, having the right to participate in demonstrations, the freedom to speak your mind, that was that was a pursuit that many of the migrants from the South were were were, were seeking. I want to I want to touch on something you just said in your last answer because I think it's really really important. Um, America, uh, the the Declaration of Independence was a document based on dissent and secession, and you just said that dissent was taken away from many black voices. And could you could you say a little bit more about that because that's really really important. I mean, sort of. The foundational underpinnings of the country were taken away from from some of its citizens. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, you know, there was a real fear that that black newspapers in the South would be shut down if they spoke, you know, truth to power, uh, as the late Manning Marable used to say. There was, you know, there was an inability to publicly critique Jim Crow. You know, there was all of this crazy you know, kind of Jim Crow etiquette, you know, that, um, that, you know, the apartheid in some ways regime demanded, you know, so that when, when Booker T. Washington gave a famous speech in Atlanta in 1895, he has to sort of genuflect to the white audience and, 
and say in some ways that he concedes that segregation is appropriate. And this is the kind of speech that is allowed, that is sanctioned, that is held up. But if you are, you know, if you are somebody like W.B. Du Bois or others, you know, who are trying to who are trying to actually tell the truth about what is happening, you're very often you're, you know, you're, you're lynched, your, your offices burned to the ground, many newspapers, uh, many people who were, who, tr- who did speak out, who did challenge the system were killed. I mean, they paid with their lives. Like this was one of the, the mo- the motivations behind lynching was to, was to kill people who resisted white supremacist authority, people who defied in their own ways this system. So civil liberties were repressed, but, it, you know, and, and terror is, was, was a modus operandi of what American apartheid, you know, rested upon. How does the traditional account of the civil rights movement in the 1960s uh, square not only with that movement, but also the larger black liberation struggle in your view? Yeah, well, um, it's a great question, which I, I could talk about for a long time. But it, the, the traditional narrative of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's first it wants to tell it as a regional story. It's always trying to contain its power and contain it. It's always, I think the traditional narrative is trying to do two things, contain the power of black thought and of black critique of, of American institutions. And then it's also trying to sanitize, sanitize or whitewash in some ways, the deeper truth about the nature of racial disparity of white supremacy of racial inequality in American life. So, it, so for the, for the latter, it, it tries to tell the story of racism or segregation or inequality as a regional story, as a Southern story. Uh, rather than a national story that's rooted in national policy, national institutions, federal policy, and that and and important institutions in the private sector like banks and real estate offices and and major you know unions and corporate America. So there's a desire to sort of constrain that truth about the national character of 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 American apartheid, and then I think there's a store there's a desire to to contain the sort of contours of black analysis and black thought. So it's much more comforting for a lot of white Americans and other Americans maybe to think that the goal was you know to use a, a water fountain you know for, freely or or you know to sit in the front of the bus. Like that's maybe more palatable than to understand that, you know, that that figures such as Martin Luther King or Ella Baker or Malcolm X or Fannie Lou Hamer were actually calling for full employment or calling for, you know, had a much more much more of a focus on socioeconomic rights and calling for uh, redistribution of American wealth calling for, you know, their conception of rights was constantly expanding and broadening as the movement grew. But I think a through line from the 30s through the 70s is really a focus on on economic rights, on, on the rights to affordable and dignified housing, the right to shelter, and the right to a job, not just the right to opportunity for a job, but the right to a job. The right for health care, I think these things have always been played down in the way the story is remembered and portrayed. I think the dominant portrait tends to focus, again, on social and political rights. It'll talk about voting rights. But it really downplays economic redress and socioeconomic rights, which are always at the heart 
of the struggle in the urban in the rural south and in the urban north and west. So that that tends to get played down. And we've seen in our own time, right, that the question of policing and the central role of law enforcement and police, the police power has been has been a you know, a key form of like enforcing in some ways racial segregation, white supremacy, racial inequality. And I think that the role of the civil rights struggle and and fighting for defendants' rights and fighting against stop and frisk, unreasonable search and seizure, that's a through line through the whole era of the black liberation struggle that tends not to get taught, that tends to get bifurcated. But this analysis of the way that the criminal legal system was used in some ways to control black labor, to control black dissent, another form, I would say, of black thought or analysis that that is has been seen as sort of threatening to the, the operation of that part of society. So it gets downplayed and it gets sort of removed from this narrative of the black freedom struggle. Hmm. Well, it, it's inevitable that if, if, that if, we're, if we're going to talk about these histories, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a larger scope, you know, not only African-American history, but women's history, LGBTQ history, um, so on and so forth. If you're going to talk about these histories, that means you're going to raise issues that are not necessarily flattering to the dominant paradigm. And with, with, with that, I want to talk about one of those unflattering aspects that has made its way to the silver screen recently. Talk about, if you would, something, again, that happened in Chicago where you live. Talk about the life and death of Fred Hampton. Uh, yes, I saw that movie, and I think it, they did a great job of bringing that story, to, you know, as you said, to the silver screen. It's a, you know, I, I've taught for years the Eyes in the Prize documentary about the life and murder of Fred Hampton. You know, he was, it's just amazing. He was 21 when they assassinated him. So young and did so much in his short life. And I think that that's part of his continuing sort of appeal, you know, certainly here in Chicago where people knew him. But the hopefulness that he represented, I mean, as a young person who had such maturity and such sort of wisdom already and such a a vision of justice that was very inclusive, was he was forming alliances with you know, with Latinos, with sort of young white Southern migrants, um, many different African-American groups. So he really believed in coalitions. He really believed in in centering the needs of black young people and poor people and students. He was, you know, a, a champion of, of workers' rights and very critical of police brutality, you know, which ended up being part of you know, the, I mean, obviously that's what ended up killing him. But, you know, he did in some ways personify this paranoid fear that FBI leader J. Edgar Hoover had of the black movement. I mean, he, in some ways, a figure like, he called a figure like Hampton, quote unquote, a black messiah. And instead of seeing a figure like Hampton as like something to be hopeful and excited about, that he was labeled as a danger. So he trained the FBI to be on the lookout for powerful effective, visionary, charismatic black leaders, exactly what the country needs, were portrayed as terrorists and, you know, violent threats that needed to be contained and often eliminated. So, you know, it's tragic, but I I feel like that mindset of, uh, in federal law enforcement, especially, of seeing black protests as always already violent and as seeing sort of violent extremism as coming from black insurgencies, black dissent, 
And what was right before their very eyes was the fact in our own time, I'm talking about here now, what was right before their very eyes, not just in our own time, but in, with other groups in the past, but that the, actually the threats of violent extremism were coming from the right wing, were coming from this history of kind of racial terror, right? Whether it's the Ku Klux Klan or to these Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and these, these, these vigilante groups, these militias that have emerged, right, more powerful in this Trumpist era. So, you know, the FBI doesn't look at them as a problem, as a source of violence. They still have this category, black extremist group. So we're kind of still living with that racial disparity in the vision of the FBI, like that their, their refusal in some ways to be honest about where violent threats come from in American life left us vulnerable and open to an insurrection from these very groups. So, so I think that, that the Fred Hampton movie, I think... You know, it shows us, again, the power of young people, what could have been, what might have been, but then the nefarious role of law enforcement, both on the local level and the federal level, and being so threatened by, by, by charismatic black leadership, by effective black organizing. You know, it's almost like this continuing nightmare that you feel like the white regime lives with of the slave revolt that's always, that, that's always on the verge of happening. And so this use of overwhelming force against black people when they organize and try and defend their rights, try and defend the dignity of their communities. And I'm listening to you give an analysis of Fred Hampton's work. And I was thinking to myself, I mean, my God, this could have, this person could have been 2018, 2019, 2020. I mean, so much is is sort of stagnant in the same work needs to be done now. I'm wondering, and this this is maybe slightly off from, from the, the whole nature of our conversation, but I figured you'd be a good person to ask the, the following question. Could you please explain to me, why does the FBI building still adorn the name of J. Edgar Hoover? And could you include yeah, COINTELPRO uh, in your answer, please? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, right? I, I join you in asking that question. <laughs> and, you know, and people have been, I know that there has been some organizing and some campaigns of pressure uh, against the FBI to change that. I, I'm not really versed in that struggle, so I couldn't really give you an update on, on, on what's going on there. But I think that that's a, it's a vital, vital name to change on a building. Absolutely. COINTELPRO, which is an acronym for the Counterintelligence Program, was a program that emerged in, the, in sort of in the immediate aftermath of McCarthyism in the United States which was itself another acronym for federal repression and surveillance of, of insurgent forces in American life. McCarthyism was aimed at the Communist Party and Communist sympathizer, sympathizers, but ultimately just sort of broad swaths of liberals in American life. COINTELPRO continued its obsession with sort of the, the organized left, socialists and communists, but it also really gave a full focus in the in the 60s and 70s in particular on the Black Liberation Movement. And it labeled as subversive and as threats even people like Martin Luther King Jr., right? People who, you know, who were advocates of nonviolent uh, direct action protest, grassroots empowerment and organizing. These figures were labeled as threats by J. Edgar Hoover, by the counterintelligence program. As I mentioned before, he had an explicitly explicit policy that that so-called black messiahs, right? Visionary, effective, popular black leaders, right? Who were telling the truth about racism. These were people that he deemed threats to national security. 
I can't emphasize that enough. People fighting for racial justice were labeled threats to national security. This is something we've never had a full accounting on. We've never sort of purged law enforcement of the insidious after effects, after lives of that kind of thinking. And Hoover was in that position for decades. He amassed extraordinary power in American life. And COINTELPRO ended up destroying the Black Panther Party, including the assassination of many of its leaders. Many were set up in, 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 in fake with, you know, fake prosecutions, and some were incarcerated as a result of this, trumped up charges, lies, falsehoods. So COINTELPRO, but it, you know, was targeted against the Panthers, but a wide range of organizations in the kind of what we call the Black Power era. But it also affected, again, people like Dr. King, uh, liberals, leftists, you know, a range, a wide range of the black liberation struggle, but also the anti-Vietnam War movement, the Puerto Rican liberation struggle, the American Indian movement fell under the tentacles of the broad sort of repressive and violent force that the FBI had assumed in that era to really put down dissent. Um, again, in their eyes, in many respects, the Bill of Rights did not extend to these issues, to these organizations, to this kind of rhetoric. They saw it as very, very threatening. In many ways, J. Edgar Hoover is an example of like just a single individual figure who can have extraordinary power in American history or in American life. And his name, I mean, his name absolutely does not deserve on that, to be on that building, but we need a full accounting. I mean, we need you know, I mean, he was guilty of crimes, and he was the leading law enforcement agent in the United States. Professor Martha Biondi, African American Studies, Northwestern University. I, I want to thank you uh, for, for for joining me today on the public morality public morality, and offering your wise wise analysis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Stay tuned as I speak with University of California economics professor Sylvia Allegretto about the recent setback to increase the federal minimum wage. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome back. It appears the proposed minimum wage included in President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill does not have the votes to make it out of Congress. But a defeat in Congress does not mean the conversation will go away. Increasing the minimum wage to $15 per hour has increasingly become a mainstream issue. We're honored to have one of the nation's leading economic voices on the minimum wage, Professor Sylvia Allegretto. Professor Allegretto is currently an economics professor at the Institute of Research on Labor and Employment at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Sylvia Allegretto, welcome to The Public Morality. So great to be here, Byron. Yeah. You know, though it seemed, uh, I guess the way the, the, it's been cast in, in, in the coverage, like a defeat for the federal minimum wage increase of $15 per hour, when I look at over the years, I mean, $15 per hour several years ago started as like a fringe conversation, and now it's made its way in the mainstream discourse. So what do you attribute the change uh, for many regarding how they view the, the minimum wage conversation? Well, I think there's just been a massive shift. And part of that shift is the fight for 15. Uh, that was what the activists were out there fighting for. But then, you know, uh, here at my center at Berkeley, the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics, 
And we set out well over a decade ago before the fight for 15 uh, to study the minimum wage, uh, especially my colleague, Aaron Dubay at uh, UMass. Uh, he came in, uh, we, we, we laid out a body of work over the years. And uh, we continue to do that with, again, with our colleagues, such as uh, Ben Zipper at EPI and, and folks. And basically there were some uh, new methods to expand the research, new data, new ways of thinking. And so we built a, a real credible body of research that has been very successful in changing hearts and minds, even of economists, uh, where, as you're, I think, alluding to, you know, most, most economists uh, uh, over a decade or two ago, you know, were not, not very pro-minimum wage increases. And the second reason is we're at $7.25 an hour. Most agree that that is far too too low. Even at $8 an hour, that's 16 grand a year. Uh, and minimum wage workers are not teenagers anymore. That's another reason why there's been a, a shift in, in the thinking. Uh, you know, and so if we go to 15 or something around there, we can get full-time workers over 30 grand a, a year. So it's, it's really in the discourse of a high versus a low road economy. And, and, and look, we all know that part of this discourse is inequality. The Occupy Wall Street started this, the Black Lives Matter, the women's movement, bringing all of this information to inequality and how it has grown so out of hand. It's vast and ever growing. And the rich just keep getting richer. So we're the richest country in the world. And I think people are realizing we can do a lot more. And we just should not have the term working poor in a country as wealthy as the United States of America. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the stereotype that some put forth that, that the minimum wage is for those in their first jobs, young people, low-skilled workers. But, but that's not the origin historically of how the minimum wage and, and how it came about. I mean, it, it wasn't we need to do something for, for, for young people in their first job. That's not how we got a, a minimum wage uh, in the first place. Is that correct? Right. And that's a really good point uh, in, in this in this discourse is to say that, you know, the minimum wage is much, much lower than it was in real terms adjusted for price increases than 50 years ago. But the, 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 the minimum wage worker is much more productive because of technological growth. Um, you, you know, they're older, they're they're more educated. But yet, you know, the minimum wage workers of today are making less than their counterparts were uh, many, many decades ago. So, so I guess one, one of the questions, I, and I'm sure this is the, some of the pushback that, that you've gotten um, for, for the minimum wage increase uh, to 15, uh, some might posit, well, $15 an hour can work in San Francisco. In fact, San Francisco pays a wage higher than that. I don't know if it, does it work as well in Jackson, uh, Mississippi? So how, how, how do you respond to that, that argument? Well, we have put out some papers, and we actually have one specifically on Mississippi looking at a $15 minimum wage that we that we were trying to tweeze that out a few years ago. And, you know, what we showed was that, you know, you really can't discount the massive amount of money that you're putting in the hands of people who need it and people who will spend it and the stimulus effect. 
And so there, there, there are many uh, margins here when you talk about raising the wage. And we do have to be careful. We have to be thoughtful. I mean, the wage that we're, we're talking about now is not going to be $15 overnight. It's going to be phased in like most of them are. Uh, but we show that even in these low-wage areas um, and rural areas, they can handle a $15 minimum wage. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep an eye on it. And we certainly do worry about small businesses. Uh, but there are things that can be done, for instance, uh, through the tax code that could help phase in to a $15 minimum wage. But again, I think we have to have this hard conversation of that the minimum wage is holding us back. It's just putting more money in the hands of the rich and the powerful at the expense of the rest of us. So at some point, we have to get off the couch and say we're going to do something about this. Too often in our public discourse in general, um, it's, a, it's, a binary, it's a binary conversation. Talk about the one, one, of the, one of the criticisms is that it's a job killer. What I understand is that it, it would lose some jobs, but also that same amount of people would be lifted out of poverty. So uh, to say it's a job killer, explain why that would be an oversimplification. Yes, that's a great question, Byron, because it is a massive uh, uh, oversimplification. Uh, and first of all, let me just say that when, they, you know, right now they're doing surveys of low-wage workers and asking them, even if there are job losses, do you support a minimum wage increase? And by an overwhelming majority, they say yes, because they get it. Low-wage work typically is very high turnover work. And what it really means is the jobs don't go away. And then a person who's a low-wage worker never gets a job again. It's usually on the margin of hours. So maybe some hours are cut. So a low-wage worker who's working maybe less hours but getting a much higher wage is still going to be better off. And if we do have uh, you know, job losses or jobs aren't growing as fast, what it really means on the ground is it may take a little bit more time to find a job, but once you do, you'll be paid much, much higher wage. And so that is an oversimplification. And I think it's a very, very important point. And, and by the way, when you take it all together, even with some kind of job loss, uh, you know, which we think like with the CBO's uh, job loss of like 1.4 million, that's actually still pretty small. Uh, we think it was way overstated, by the way, but um, just to stay out of all of that argumentation, we can, we can just say, look, when you look at pulling people out of poverty and families out of poverty, and don't forget, people who are low-wage workers tend to live in communities that are low-wage communities. So you're going to bring workers, families, and whole communities we're going to be lifting up. We're going to get rid of the term working poor. And don't forget, a lot of money in the hands of a lot of people who need it, and uh, that's going to be a stimulative effect on the economy. So in almost any way you look at it, if you do a full cost-benefit analysis, the benefits far outweigh the costs. Mm. You you recently signed uh, one of the signatures uh, of, of an open letter in the Economic Policy Institute that called for a gradual uh, minimum wage of fifteen dollars per hour by twenty twenty four, and as you stated earlier, that it would be a gradual increase, and then indexing it against future erosion thereafter. Uh, my question to you: instead of focusing on the hard number, why not push for the index now? Well, that's just not going to get us where we need to go. I mean, if you're going to start indexing from 725, uh, you are basically starting from a, a very low point. 
And so you're never going to get uh, any significant increases, especially when indexing is to the uh, price increases that have been running on average about 2% per year. So it's going to take a very long, 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 long time to get to you know $10, let alone $15. So no, uh, every, everybody, almost everybody agrees overwhelmingly in this country that 725 is far too low. So we need a significant increase to make a real difference. Well, I mean, if you increase I'm sorry, go ahead. to 725 by 2%, you're not going to make a difference in anybody's lives. Oh, but could you, could you, um, could, could one conceivably, I don't know, um, uh, index not from, not from 725, but index, uh, sort of a, a federal across the board, no one can pay, uh, must pay this percentage of GDP. Could you do something like that? Uh, I I don't know that anybody's ever talked about like a percentage of GDP. What what people do talk about is maybe some percentage of the median wage, right? Uh, what what is most what are most people in the economy making, and somehow pegging it to that. Uh, look, you know, people can argue over whether it should be fifteen dollars or fourteen dollars. Or, or what have you, and I'll leave that up to uh, the politicians to figure out and, and to see where <laughs> they can go with it. Uh, all I know is 725 is far too low. Right. Um, and so we need to, you know, first get a big increase and then and start indexing to that. Uh, and again, 725 has been in effect since to begin with. So a lot of whatever increase that we get is going to just be time since 2009. And, and like I sta stated, um, just Trying to get us to where low-wage workers were 50 years ago would be a good thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but, but the societies, the countries that, that pay a higher wage have taken the decision out of the hands of politicians and, and have gone to an indexing uh, format so that people are able to keep pace. Is that, is that correct? I'm talking about going forward. Yeah, that's right. The way we've been doing it here is we have, you know, minimum wage fights coming up and minimum wage bills and some pass, most of them don't. And so you have the minimum wage uh, stagnating and actually eroding because, again, as prices increase year after year, the 725 becomes less and less and less. And so since 2009, that becomes pretty significant. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you got it to a place where we actually had higher wages that were going for a high wage instead of a low wage econ uh, uh, economy, if we want to do other things, Byron, that are so tied to minimum wage workers, like we need to have job quality. These are very low job quality, meaning they don't come with health care. Most of these workers can't afford to 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 have health care that is that is what they actually need and can afford, right? High co-pays, they end up paying stuff like that. We need universal paid leave and paid time off. Uh, we need the ability to join the union, to join unions, right? The PRO Act that, that Biden is talking about, President Biden is talking about now, that's the um, ability for workers who uh, can can ex can uh, express their right to form and join unions without being unduly harassed or fired. Uh, so we really need a whole package. And um, I'm really excited about what Joe Biden's talking about, because it's not just wages. It's the idea of the richest country in the world not leaving anybody who gets up and goes to work every day behind. 
Well, that leads me to my to my next question. In that, though, I'm sure for the, for the proponents, for the advocates of fifteen dollars an hour, to not see it make the cut uh, in the one point nine uh, COVID relief package, in one sense, is it possible that defeat could be a silver lining? Because when you look at what you've just outlined. It seems to me that the minimum wage conversation is far more complicated than a binary yes or no on $15 per hour, given what you just said. And is this now an opportunity to have this sort of fuller judicious conversation about about the larger implications of poverty, not just wages, but also benefits? Yeah, absolutely. And again, we have been in and out of this conversation over the last few years, especially with Occupy Wall Street, when we had the great recession and through no fault of their own many many workers and their families were thrown you know into poverty thrown out of work losing their homes uh, look we just have a very lopsided economy we have the rich who are wealthy and they keep getting more wealthy meaning they take more and more and more of the income that is generated by these workers by the way so we're not you know a developing country we're we're not a poor country where we can't talk about having these high road values. We are the country that should be doing the best to lift up our lowest wage workers. We shouldn't have, again, the term working poor in a country such as ours. And we have to start thinking big. And one of the ways you can do this is to pass these more progressive policies. Um, we should be doing much more for our low wage workers in this country. And, and when the rich are getting wealthy, and, and, you know, uh, uh, hurting the rest of us, that's when it has to stop. The rich are always going to be wealthy. The corporations are always going to get their fair share and then some. But we have to start thinking very seriously about unwinding this very unfair and very perverse uh, inequality that we have in the U.S. And that's what these policies will start to do. Professor Silvia Allegretto, uh, Economist uh, Institute for Research on Labor and Employment at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you for joining me today on the, on the Public Rally. Much appreciated your wise counsel. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.